Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Um, I have a truly special guest today. Uh, my guest today is Reva Siegel, who is the Nicholas, no relation, I should say, uh, the Nicholas Katzenbach Professor of Law at Yale Law School. She is a graduate of Yale College, Yale Law School. She's a master of philosophy from Yale. Um, she's on uh, one of the leading con law casebooks in the country. She's a co-author. She's written too many articles to count. She's on the board of advisors of ACS. And to sum it up neatly, she is quite simply one of the most important scholars in the country when it comes to reproductive rights and con law generally. Thank you, Reva, for being here. Thanks for that lovely introduction, Eric. <laughs> it's really nice to see you. Um, so let's talk about Dobbs. Let's just start there. Where were you when you first heard about the leak and how did you feel when you first read? I assume you read the draft opinion. What do you think about that? So I actually have um, a zany recollection. I believe that uh, this was a year ago last night. Yes. Um, yes. The opinion dropped. <laughs> and uh, I happened to be having the onset of my first and only case of COVID. Oh. The same <laughs> time that the opinion <laughs> appeared, it all merged together. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the leaked draft actually starts, as the published Dobbs opinion does, with uh, Justice Alito singling out a brief on which I co-authored with, with Melissa Murray and Serena Mayeri um, that made an equal protection claim for the abortion right, even though there was no equal protection claim in the Dobbs case. So in dicta, he uh, reached out to try to trash um, the argument of the brief, saying it had no basis in precedent without engaging any of the arguments of the brief. And so um, I got left uh, left on my doorstep. Some wonderful RAs left me a bottle of wine with a, <laughs> just say a certain note about Justice Alito. And um, I've saved a picture of that with my positive COVID test as a, a memory of where I was a year ago. That's so funny. That, that was my general experience. I can't say reading much improved. If I read any deeper, it got worse, actually. So um, if I were just to say a minute or two about it, I guess I would say nobody hearing the oral argument in the case was really surprised about the outcome, except maybe insofar as leaking the draft seemed to steal in certain alignments, possibly, question mark. But um, I did not believe the tenor of the opinion. I thought that there were so many ways you could overturn the abortion right and still express respect uh, for women that this opinion seemed to move in the exact opposite direction to uh, express a certain degree of um, disrespect or we're loving to take away 50 years of your rights and here return to the mid 19th century. So that was a little bit of a, a shock, I think. That must have been quite a one, a, I'm sorry, that must have been quite a one-two one, two punch. Uh, first yes. you get COVID, then you get the Dobbs leak. Um, yes. I had exactly this. I had exactly the same reaction. And as someone who is pro-choice all the way down, but skeptical of Roe and Casey, I've written in my head how to reverse Roe and Casey many, many times in a respectful, inclusive way. And this was the opposite of that. Um, I have a question about that. So I think first and foremost, it was disrespectful to women. No question about it. It just wiped them off the face of the earth. Um, but I was surprised how incredibly disrespectful it also was to O'Connor, Souter, and Kennedy. It felt like there were many times in that opinion where one of the um, agenda items was to really 
take apart those three people, those three justice contributions to substantive due process in general, to abortion specifically. A lot of anger, I thought. Did you get that impression? Uh, I did. And I think it's because the decision really reasons from a deeply polarized place. And so what those justices did was kind of unforgivable because they were appointed by Republican presidents from a party that had committed since 1980 to appoint justices who would overturn Roe. And when they found themselves on the court, that was not the way they proceeded. And I think that was the most unforgivable. Um, they practiced a form of constitutionalism in which they imagine the constitution is speaking to all Americans and needing to uh, secure the respect and regard of all Americans. And that's not the way that the current uh, conservative block on the court is interpreting the document. I think that's, I, I, I agree with that. I also, I also just wonder how much they wanted to, <clears throat> I guess, I, I, I don't know any other way of saying this. They really tried to injure the reputation of those three justices, it felt like, because there was a lot of gratuitous comments, especially about Casey, that, that um, just seemed unusual to me. When a court reverses a prior opinion, it doesn't normally, even a big opinion, it doesn't take on the authors personally. This felt like it was a personal attack to me. I, I'm not, I'm not going dis, to disagree with that. I, I think that the justices whom Justice Alito was insulting model a, a, a way of being in the law that's just very different than their own. And also, I think that to a degree that is um, impressive, the conservatives have uh, attacked Roe by name calling it innuendo. And so they, they manifested a lot of that in the opinion. Um, I don't think that the opinion is any less uh, a form of responsive, dynamic interpretation. You know, it expresses contemporary values. Right. And yet somehow or other, they imagine they're speaking from some other domain of superior jurisprudence in a way that is laughable. Yeah. Um, and one thing that hasn't been talked about very much is I, I, I guess the way it works is Justice Thomas would have assigned the opinion, right? Or would Roberts have assigned the? I think. I think. I think since Roberts concurred, I don't think he joined. It would have been Thomas as the most senior justice. The fact that he assigned it to Alito, I think, is is something that we haven't talked very much about, at least in the media. But I think that's interesting. Uh, I guess Thomas was maybe too busy on the gun case to take it himself. He saved that one for his birthday. I think. <laughs> I think it dropped the day before because I was a bit in shock already from reading Bruin. By the time I hit Dobbs, it was like the one-two punch. Uh, but I, I think he really had an appetite to run, to write the gun opinion. And also, he shared views about what should happen, or he held views about what should happen in the abortion case, that he couldn't get any majority of his uh, ju you know, conservative justices to join, namely that the court would be better eliminating uh, any form of substantive due process root branch, you know? Right. I think that's right. That, that, that's, that sounds exactly right. So Dobbs, um, one of the things that people have criticized Dobbs for is even if we accept that there are five justices who say they're originalists, you know, my view is they're not originalists. They don't vote originalists, but, but they say they are. This opinion is in no sense an originalist opinion, really. It, it starts in the 13th century, goes, you know, to the late 18th century, 19th century, I think. Um, what does this tell us about, if anything, about originalism in the court? Because they didn't really focus on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment at all. 
Well, there's a lot of ways of looking at this. Um, certainly, uh, prominent originalists, including uh, Larry Solom, have called this living originalism because it doesn't in any way endeavor to uh, apply original public meaning originalism. But a different way of understanding how the opinion is originalist is to think of originalism not as just a, a method of interpreting the constitution that current academics employ, but as a movement creed, yeah. uh, as a form of political affiliation that's essentially had Roe as its target for the last 40 years. And I do tell that story in a paper uh, that's called Memory Games, which is forthcoming this spring. And I, I think that if you sample uh, Americans, many Americans view attaching the Constitution to old times, as it were, as a form of originalism. And in fact, the justices, excuse me, the, the members of the Justice Department, of the Reagan Justice Department, talked about what they were doing in terms of a jurisprudence of original intention with very little historical specification and no attention to meaning. So another way of putting my answer in a short form is, one, whatever originalism is, is plural. It's evolved in history and has a significant branch of people acting in politics to particular ends, which is different than what originalism claims, which is to be um, uh, objective and not value invested. So we have to face the fact that there are lots of practices flying under the label originalism. And most Americans know that there's a form of originalism that equates with the politics of the conservative legal movement. And in that sense, the opinion is and is claimed to be originalist. You've but no, it doesn't conform to original public meaning originalism at all. Right. And so you've written a lot of great um, uh, articles about social movements. You, you and your colleague Jack Balkan, I think, are the two people I go to when I want to read about social movements. <clears throat> and I, I don't think Amer I think there are a lot of people, including lawyers, who who look at who look at originalism today as a theory of interpretation or a way to decide cases, not as a social movement. But in fact, it really is almost ninety nine percent a social movement. Is that right? Yeah, I I. I think if we, well, let me back up and say, if you consult historians or political scientists, meaning if you step outside of law, that is how originalism is described. That is the practices and aims of the conservative legal movement in America having a history running back at least until the Reagan years. And when you look at it that way, you can appreciate that we have two forms of talk about originalism, either that it has goals and ends, or that it's value neutral and that the interpreters bring no goals and aims to it and that it's what separates law from politics. And that points out to us that originalism is, I don't know if I want to call it double talk, but it's at least semantically unstable. Right. And so people can talk about what it is they mean to do under the banner of originalism and still claim to be acting in law and not politics. And somehow other people buy this story. It's interesting. So uh, Bruce Ledowitz is a professor at, uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's a professor at Duquesne. And he was on my podcast a couple times ago. He made a point about originalism. <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry, I'm a little, a little cold this morning. Um, that I'd never thought about before. And, you know, I've written a book on the thing. So I've thought a lot about originalism. But he made an interesting point. He said, if you take originalism at its best and most pure and most sincere, which is not how it's practiced, but theoretically, it's a it's supposed to be a value neutral enterprise. You're supposed to go back in, in theory and look at what the words meant back then and not bring any 
uh, values to the to the enterprise. And what he was saying is that's very very cynical <laughs> and very and very skeptical because he was saying values matter and and values count and there are good values and bad values. But originalism seems to collapse that and just say we don't care about the values. Just look at the text and the meaning. And I thought that was a really interesting insight that that even if it's if it was practiced purely, it would actually be a very cynical doctrine. Yeah, I I think that there are many critics who've worked through the forms of um, indeterminacy and impossibility in various forms of originalism enough to show that one way or another, value-based and substantive judgments are going to get enfolded. Yeah. One of the things that I find the most exasperating is that what I would call the movement identified forms of originalism, um, and that is, just, I'm not now painting a brush over all practitioners, but many practitioners um, are engaged in what I call in memory games, ventriloquizing the <laughs> historical sources. It's a great word. I like that. <laughs> They're speaking through the historical sources and that is non-transparent and in a deep sense, it's non-democratic because it hides from uh, Americans where value judgments are being made and it, it presents itself as speaking in a form of expertise. You know, we've examined the documents, we've examined <laughs> the sources, and we know what you do not, not know, so you should defer to us. Unlike someone like, um, for example, you were talking about their contempt for Tony Kennedy, Justice yes. Kennedy, who will generally articulate the values that are moving the jurisprudence and acknowledge that these commitments and their evolving meanings have been worked out amongst Americans over time. His cases, many of them do that very thing. And for that honesty, they heap contempt upon him, but they are generally, and now I'm not talking about all originalists, but I'm saying many of the movement identified originalists and many sitting judges will do the same practice but hide their value judgments behind this false form of expertise and demand deference. Um, and in that respect, they're cutting American, they're blinding Americans um, from understanding the sources of law that they're being asked to defer to. So I, I find that less respect worthy is my bottom line. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting you mentioned Kennedy in that context. I once wrote a piece about the phrase judicial activism and Kennedy. And I said, we, that phrase has been misused and, and it's not a good phrase. I think where we can use that phrase is when a justice does not give the real reasons for his or her decisions. And, I, and the point of that piece was Kennedy normally gave the reasons. And, and that, that created all kinds of issues for formalists who wanted doctrine and categories and this and that. You know, I think Obergefell is a fantastic example of a totally transparent opinion. He said this is a total lack of dignity for these people. It is government enforced. And, and I think the, the formalists and especially Scalia got really upset about that. But at the end of the day, don't we want judges to do that, to tell us exactly why they're deciding the way they're deciding? Well, in my view, yes. <laughs> and that's that's makes the law, as I'm calling it, democratic, because if Americans think it's wrong, they understand where the source of value is coming from and where what the reasoning is. And they're in a position to argue with the court as opposed to having it all obscured or hidden behind a curtain and being told that they should defer because they don't have the relevant expertise to figure it out. Um, I, for many years, I taught my 
um, introductory constitutional law class ending with Obergefell and Heller back to back. Right. Um, so to give the students a chance to see two really different styles of judgment and to see how each one has certain kinds of virtues that the other might condemn or uh, interrogate. And, and that, that always has been my point there. People may not agree with the results. The question is, are they empowered to argue with the results? The irony of what you just said um, is that, so they, the, the, the originalists, the so-called originalist justices, you know, um, they have no expertise in history, <laughs> none. And neither do their law clerks, you know, 99% of them. The idea that, that judges can perform this task is kind of crazy to begin with as the district court judge in Mississippi, I think it was Mississippi said when, when after Bruin, he had to decide whether the federal ban on felony possession of guns applied to nonviolent felonies. And he said to the department of justice, should we hire a special master? Cause all I'm allowed to look at is history. And, and, and he said, I can't do history. <laughs> it's not what I'm good at. I think that's an irony here that they're criticizing Kennedy for something, you know, Kennedy made his values clear. They're using history to hide their values. Anyway, um, I know we agree on that. I want to talk about equal protection for a second. So you wrote a brief that suggested that um, the right to abortion can be found in the Equal Protection Clause. And one of the most infuriating things about Dobbs, to me, was the one-paragraph dismissal of that argument. Can you talk about that a little bit? So uh, I agree. It's beyond infuriating. I actually thought... Um, to never engage, first of all, there wasn't formally an equal protection uh, claim in that case. The complaint had been amended, actually, in Judge Reed's court. Right. And uh, so uh, whatever is said in the opinion still remains dicta in the sense of it's not binding law, although it does predict for us how that conservative majority is likely to vote in a case at least of Dobbs's breadth. In any event, um, uh, there is a precedent uh, called Gedoldig um, from the very dawn of sex discrimination case law in the early 1970s. And in our brief, we did two things. We showed how, um, in fact, the law had evolved since um, the Gedoldig case and showed many, uh, uh, several cases, including the key sex discrimination case that Ginsburg wrote in the 90s, the Virginia case, that showing that you could have sex discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, that the fact that there was just a difference there would not preclude a claim of sex stereotyping or bias. So we, in the opening part of our brief, showed the ways in which the Mississippi statute um, made Victorian kinds of claims about women and abortion and referred to the maternal patient and other things in the text of the statute and located it in 19th century history. And in that respect, our brief was very Ginsburgian, we could say. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I want to bring people's attention to the second half of the argument in the brief, um, which um, is near and dear to my heart, in fact, as someone who's concerned about protecting life, in fact. And the second part of the brief said, look, Mississippi, if you actually were concerned with protecting potential life, there are so many policy levers that you have in this state to employ that are non-targeted and non-coercive. You could provide sex ed and contraception. You could expand Medicaid. You could um, increase your tennis so that you're not the, the give the least amount of money to the um, 
poor citizens, but um, are up in the normal range in the middle of the country. You could um, provide assistance with childcare. You could do any number of these things if you were genuinely moved by this end. But the only way you seem to have an interest in protecting life is by singling out and coercing um, uh, parenthood on those who otherwise would choose not to become parents. And that is a gender-based set of assumptions it may even be, there may even be strands of race in it, but that would take a longer conversation. Right. Um, right. But uh, it, it, that is the kind of judgment that is constitutionally offensive. You know, it has its 19th century antecedents. In the 19th century, um, in fact, the people who criminalized abortion talked openly about sex roles. This just performs it. And, and, and I'll just end up by saying that I have throughout my career worked on issues having to do with the social provision of care and support for caregivers. And so <clears throat> I consider myself to be, um, if, they, if I want to use their terms, pro-life in a different register. I just wouldn't use the tools of coercion first. So that was the second half of that. And Justice Alito engaged with none of it. Not a single one of <clears throat> the cases or the arguments in the brief. All he said is, this argument is foreclosed by precedent. And to say that in an opinion that's overturning <laughs> 50 years of precedent, right. saying quite a lot. Yes. Uh, this may make you feel better or it may not. I don't know. But when I, when I speak to non-lawyers, which I do a fair amount, and I go through what I think are the worst Supreme Court cases, whenever I get to Gelding, <laughs> and there's another case too, and it's, when the Supreme for the non-lawyers listening to this, the Supreme Court held that discrimination based on pregnancy is not gender discrimination. And when I say that, to people, they think it's absolutely insane. I mean, how can discrimination based on pregnancy not be gender discrimination? Um, and they don't get it. And it, it, it really, and it's, it's still the law of the land. Now, I will say, and this gets complicated. Um, I have, um, I have, I have three daughters or three children, uh, two of which are fifteen and fourteen, and those two um, had some interesting views about pregnancy and gender discrimination because, in their view, men can get pregnant. Um, and you know, that's a whole different issue. I know. Um, but the other thing I wanted to, but that does get complicated. Can I say one thing to that, yeah. <clears throat> to yeah. that point? Um, our brief was very careful to actually take an inclusive perspective on the question of pregnancy. Yeah. We said <clears throat> that those who are interested in banning abortion, however, don't have that inclusive view and they're very focused on women. So whatever it wants to say about who can get pregnant in this society, abortion bans like Mississippi's are gender and gender-based because they're focused on differences between men and women. So one can actually hold both of these views. And the second thing I wanna say is that we do have statutory protections that bar pregnancy discrimination very clearly. And the Congress just expanded them last December with the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act. So for people listening, they should know that there are significant federal protections out there. Yes. And, and, and of course, it had like many, many things involving civil rights, it had to come from Congress, not the court. That's a different Correct. that's that's a different Correct. conversation, but I, I think I think it's an important one. Um so you use the phrase, I love this phrase, um, the uh the 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 politics of constitutional memory. And and I think that that it's such a great phrase. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, what I'm pointing to is the fact that when we argue with one another about who we are and what we owe one another, we often make claims about the past. And <clears throat> that's not per se suspect. It's a form of collective memory. 
It's a way that we appeal and argue um, in a community about right and wrong. And it's embedded in law. And I don't see that um, the fact that it's there is problematic, although these claims or stories about the past can intersect with fact in um, significant and non-trivial ways or can be fantasy or to be problematically selective, which is what they usually are, meaning they point to certain facts in the past and not others. Um, so is that a problem? No, but it is values-based. And there is a myth um, that circulates, especially amongst um, uh, certain practitioners of originalism, that you can just appeal to the past as a sort of impersonal set of facts that will take you outside of the domain of value. And that is a deep problem. It's just, for the most part, wrong. And it blinds the practitioners to the ways in which they themselves are likely to be implicated in what they're seeing and arguing and interpreting. Listeners of this, po- <laughs> listeners of this podcast know that I, I cite two people all the time. Uh, one is Erwin Chemerinsky and one is Dick Posner. I, I have to cite Posner once a podcast. That's a rule. Um, but um, uh, in 1989, long time ago, and three years before Casey, Erwin wrote the foreword to the Harvard Law Review. And he ends that article by saying, constitutional law is now and has always been and will always be the balancing of values. And that seems so obvious to me. Um, and, and it was obvious to Erwin in 1989. Uh, Posner has said similar things when he talks about it's really about preferences. And he says, he says con law is about values and preferences, not logic and legal reasoning. Um, what I, 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 People know I think that's an accurate descriptive account of constitutional law. Do you agree with that? I think that it is, but I also think that it's about um, intersubjective claims on value and reason and that we have practices of arguing with one another about how to... Um, uh, act in fidelity to values that we claim to hold in, hold in common. And so <clears throat> I wouldn't call it a preference in the sense that, <clears throat> I'm so sorry, that it's individuated, uh, completely individuated. I actually think that it, um, it, that law is rooted in forms and our public law is rooted in forms of value that are held in common and that we um, can argue intelligibly with one another about through practices of shared understanding of those values. And that's where the claims in about the past get um, enfolded. Now, originalism, in fact, arose at a point in time in which um, uh, conservatives were estranged from the Warren Court, and in particular from the Warren Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education, I might add. Right. Uh, Calvin Kirbyk has a wonderful article about the roots of originalism in uh, resistance to Brown. Yeah, I, I, I wrote about that piece. It was really interesting. Yeah. And over time, it becomes uh, politically um, infeasible for, uh, let's just say, lawyers, constitutional elites um, to continue to oppose Brown and Board of Education and expect to hold national leadership roles. Um, uh, Professor Brad Snyder has a wonderful piece on the canonization of Brown in which he talks about how um, as Nixon's appoint early uh, nominees are uh, blocked from uh, taking positions on the court because of their um, past affiliation with the Klan and 
other, right. um, let's just say, segregationist affiliations, um, that it becomes uh, no longer tenable to own fealty uh, to uh, to oppose the Brown decision and required actually to confirm one's allegiance to it. Rehnquist is the first um, who goes through that kind of a confirmation process because his own roots in uh, pro-segregation activities are contested in his hearing. So why do I raise all of that? I believe that in that whole process of struggle over Brown and of ways to argue with the court, this form of talking about the past emerged and it was a way of a form of backlash to the Warren court to simply say, no, we believe in the original constitution. It doesn't sound like you're uh, challenging the authority of the court so much as you're expressing fealty to a common past. See the claim on the politics yes. of memory. Yes. And so, and one could hold this position without taking public positions about Brown versus board or other contestable matters. And uh, in the Mies Justice Department in the Reagan years uh, comes the speeches in which Mies goes up against uh, uh, Justice Brennan talking about a jurisprudence of original intention. And that's just a way of signaling something in the dispute over Brown, but it's now vindicated against new cases. And Roe versus Wade is sub in right. <laughs> the first case that takes the place of Brown right. as the object of obloquy, you know? It's interesting. So that, that's the story of the origins of originalism. It, it's that point. So uh, Michael McConnell is a friend of mine, and I think he is a very smart person. Um, but it's that problem of reconciling Brown with originalism, which I think he felt an obligation to do, that led him to write this, I think, hor hor horrifically unpersuasive article that Brown could be defended on an originalist basis by looking at a lot of post-ratification history and a bunch of other things. I think a lot of uh, historians have taken the position that Michael's article is not persuasive, but he had to solve the problem. What do we do with originalism and Brown? And, 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 and I cannot tell you thousands of people just cite him and say, see, Brown can be originalist, and they do nothing else. They don't cite the 50 authors who have said McConnell was incorrect. That's a real – I mean – I don't know why I, I really have issues with Michael's article there. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's. Um, well, I, I'm going to say just, I want to loop back to an earlier part of our conversation for one reason. You know, I talked about originalism in the academy and originalism in politics. And if you understand originalism as arising as an, as part of the attack on Brown versus board, you get a sense of why it is that ordinary Americans could have views about constitutional interpretation. Normally, you wouldn't think right. that people would mobilize around a theory of interpreting the Constitution. And it's only as the Reagan, um, well, first the opponents of Brown and then the Reagan era uh, advocates begin to attach the theory to particular substantive cases that people begin to um, have a view that originalism means something near and dear to them when they don't know much all else about constitutional law. So that's the sort of sense of how you get a political discourse that's outcome oriented. As to the Brown story, 100% there is um, a kind of uh, emergence of a form of doublespeak about Brown in the Nixon and Reagan years, as it no longer is acceptable to say that you're flat out pro-segregation, pro-plessy and um, uh, opposing Brown. And there are a bunch of, I don't know if you want to call them dog whistles or substitutes that are put in place, but in order to have originalism as one of them, 
um, it needs to have somebody who's going to explain how it can be reconciled with Brown. And that's what uh, Professor McConnell, judge, I'm not sure how we should prefer to <laughs> refer to him, um, does in that paper. Yeah. Um, I, I think it would be a long, probably whole podcast to talk about the senses in which constitutional history do and don't uh, support um, Brown versus Board of Education. But there's no doubt that there are plenty of states at the time of the 14th Amendment's ratification that have segregated schools, including the District of Columbia. Yeah, and th th those are just facts. Um, I have a question about Justice Ginsburg, and it's, it, I'm going to ask you to speculate, and you're probably going to say no, but I'm going to ask anyway. So uh, in back in the year that <clears throat> when, uh, United States versus Windsor was decided and the court struck down uh, DOMA, the, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, that all happened in, I believe, June. In the spring of that year, uh, February, March, April, and May, Ginsburg went to at least two, I want to say three pretty elite law schools. And of course, she didn't talk about um, those cases, but she did talk about Roe. <laughs> and she went out of her way to say that Roe was, she's clearly pro, you know, reproductive rights, but Roe was too much in one fell swoop. Her exact phrase was Roe was too much in one fell swoop. That caused me to write a piece before um, that June that said they're not going to decide the Prop 8 case out of California. They're going to wait. They're going to find a way to wait on that. Even though Justice Kennedy wanted to do it all in one day, he wanted to strike down DOMA and strike down a state ban on same sex marriage on the same day. Ginsburg wrote an opinion dismissing the state case based on jurisdictional reasons I don't think she really believed in. Um, I think she was planning all along to make sure the court didn't do that in one day and rather do it in two parts, two or three years apart. I thought it was brilliant strategy. I think she was right. I think that that's why there was not a harsh backlash to Obergefell other than Trump getting elected maybe. Um, and I'm wondering if you thought, if you think that was intentional on her part. I mean, she went out of her way to talk about Roe being too much. So I think I could say that I not only respect, <clears throat> I revered uh, and still revere her. Sure. I always kept my professional uh, role separate from those um, relations because I wanted to be able to go my own way, think my own thoughts, um, and even if necessary, disagree. Um, I don't believe that the, I, I don't, I do believe she was an incrementalist. I don't think that there's anything wrong with incrementalism. It's a contextual decision about how a court decides a case and how wide its judgment is. But I do believe that when she was making these observations, she um, had the understanding that Roe backlash could be, uh, might have flowed from the breadth of the court's decision right. in Roe, right. uh, from the kind of decision rule that it used. And in that belief, um, I believe she was wrong. Um, and I believe that, uh, I don't want to get into the prognostication about where the court's decision would have gone if it had made Obergefell a few years earlier. That's a, sure. a, a fine thing. Sure. But I'll just say about the Roe point, she did not have access to the historical record when she had to explain to herself why 
um, a right that she supported was suddenly under attack. And um, she also, when she made her judgments, she tended to stand by them. Yes. Um, I always say that people have the, the, the weaknesses of their strengths and the strengths of their weaknesses. <laughs> and she stubborn. right. Right. Stubbornness brought her very far in life, given the world in which she was raised. I mean, right. if she had just listened to people at the time, she never would have spoken out. So it is a great quality that she had immense um, autonomy of view. But she just did not have the history when she formed those judgments. So a few things I could just say about the question of whether incrementalism would have made a difference. Um, uh, it was the case that uh, incremental ALI sort of small bore reform of abortion had basically stopped around 1970 um, because there was a mobilized, energetic and well-funded um, group opposing the decision. Um, and it was funded um, by, uh, supported by um, the Catholic Church at the time, who were the American Catholic leadership, not even um, members of the church, because their Gallup polls showing that a majority of Catholic right. Americans actually supported decriminalization at the time that Roe was decided, um, but they were opposed to the law changing. And the irony of it is that the backlash, the robust backlash, does not really set in until much later in the 70s. When Stevens is confirmed in 75, no one even asks the question about Roe. So it's not the same. I'm not saying there's no conflict, but there's, it's not occupying the same prominence in American polarization until the rise of the new right, in which the abortion issue is used to recruit um, faithful Catholic conservatives from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And that shift, I believe, namely the politics of the situation rather than the jurisprudence, has more responsibility for polarization around abortion. And the numbers also suggest that it's not a 1973 backlash, but a much more um, a long curve, long, long, long-term event that has to do with party politics. So this is one area where I think, and this is okay, you and I might reasonably disagree on some of this. Um, I've read all of yours and Linda, Linda's great work on this, and I've really thought about it. Um, and I think there's something that maybe you both underestimate just a tad, if I could be so bold. Um, when, when the Republican, when Ed Meese decided to bring the evangelicals into the Republican Party on the back of Roe, and I think we agree on that, that that was a, a major selling point. Because Jerry Falwell didn't care. In 1977, Falwell was asked on about abortion. And he said, eh, not my issue. I mean, it's not, you know, it wasn't until he was, brought to the table by the Reagan administration that evangelicals got behind the anti-Roe movement. Um, but I think it was, see, I, I think it was two prongs. And, and I say this as someone who has spent a lot of time in Alabama <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of time in the South. It was a two prong thing. It was minimally about the fetus and abortion, but it was also, do you want these unelected life tenured lawyers in Washington telling you how to live your life? And I think you and Linda underestimate the, the pull of that argument on the common person. And I think that argument led to a significant degree to the new rights, um, uh, you know, revolt against Roe. It wasn't just abortion. It was abortion plus. It's not a legislature telling you this. It's not the Congress telling you. It is these unelected life tenured lawyers. So now I want to go back yeah. to an earlier part of our conversation. Yeah. I talked about the fact that by um, 
1971 or so, <clears throat> it become not acceptable openly to oppose Brown versus Board of Education. The Hainsworth and Carswell nominations, right. uh, Rehnquist having to renounce any claim that he had, uh, assert that he had no authorship of the memo opposing uh, Brown or supporting Plessy, uh, that he wrote as a clerk for Justice Jackson and to swear fealty to Brown. All of those conditions changed the arena of argument about the courts. And the genius thing about Roe is that Roe was taken not only by conservatives, but also by liberals to be a question around which it was permissible openly to oppose the court's decision. And so Roe becomes what I call in my memory games article, a Trojan horse in which people who oppose all of the courts, warrant courts, race jurisprudence and their religion jurisprudence can mobilize and feel free openly to oppose the court and to solicit voters to join their cause against the court and to be taken to be law-abiding citizens. And so what we really need to understand in this assault on Roe is the double language that's there. I, and there are papers out there um, examining the extent to which uh, the mobilization around Falwell, the evangelical mobilization, was concerned with Bob Jones, right. was concerned with right. um, the integration of so-called private Christian segregation academies. And when those issues blurred blur together, yes, the language of abortion, and yes, the language of um, family values and gender becomes a language in which to talk about any so-called elitist interference with traditional ways of life and euphemistically comes to stand in for the whole thing. So I'm with you. I'm just not thinking that the choices that Justice Ginsburg thought were available to the court, namely go incremental and you can have the whole, uh, whole of it soon thereafter, were actually available to the court and that the problem wasn't a freestanding problem with jurisprudence, but it was a, a, a case of the mobilization of groups of Americans who actually had very little in common to join together under a common umbrella of opposing an overreaching Supreme Court with Roe as a banner for that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm both agreeing and disagreeing with you, but we need to understand we're talking now in symbolic politics, you know? Yeah. This is in some sense the roots of the transformation of the Republican Party. And it has a lot of frames that it reasons through. That, I, I agree 100%. Um, Laurie Ringhand at the University of Georgia uh, co-wrote a book on nominations, and and Lori is a wonderful scholar. She's she has read every word of every confirmation since World War II, uh, which is which is pretty impressive. <clears throat> and one of the things that she one of the main th themes of her book uh, is that we got to the point where the confirmation process told us that Brown could not be opposed. That that's one of the ways we get um, agreement in this country is when we all agree that if someone says X at their confirmation hearing, they won't get the job. And I think she was right when she wrote that book, which was prior to Trump. It chilled me to the bone when numerous of his lower court appointees would not answer the question, do you think Brown was correctly decided? Um, I think a bunch of them did that. Did that when that happened, did that, that surprised Lori. It surprised me. Did that surprise you? Well, after Charlottesville and um, yeah. certain developments on Fox News, um, I would say that we're living in a different era in which 
um, anxiety about the racial order of the United States has moved people who were content to speak in euphemisms into much more open uh, and direct disagreement with certain sort of projects of uh, race equality. And um, <clears throat> I think that uh, it's become permissible to say things out loud that were impermissible <laughs> right. years ago. Yeah. It's kind uh, of and so there's a form of, you know, indirection is gone and there's a form of in your face, you know. Scary thought, to be honest. I have one really last big question about Justice Ginsburg doesn't involve Justice Ginsburg. Let's uh, let's assume for sake of argument. So when 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 um, the Prop 8 case out of California decision came down the same term as Windsor and the court ducked same sex state same sex marriage bans at the state level. Um, I'm sorry to bring him up again, but I had a long talk with Posner about it and I was asking him, um, is that a. Is, is that a, uh, let's assume that Ginsburg did really believe it would have been too much to do it all in one day. And so her strategy was do it two or three years apart. He thought that was a perfectly legitimate consideration for a Supreme Court justice to take into account. That if a justice thinks that this decision will have such terrible consequences or, or pushback or whatever, that's part of the legal analysis of the case. And when he said that, I wasn't surprised he said that, but I don't know. I mean, do you think it's a it's it's a legitimate criteria for court to take into account what the public reaction to the decision is going to be? So there is a classic form of uh, a class set of classic understandings about jurisprudence in which we um, ask the justices not to be consequentialist and just to reason um, from their understanding of the law independent of consequence. And I um, I respect uh, that, it's not an adage, that injunction. Uh, I respect it, I understand the values that are driving it. But in the end, the court's authority depends on the recognition and respect of the American people. It doesn't bring in an army to do its business. It doesn't have that kind of power. And we actually revere it as an institution because it helps us conduct what I was referring to earlier as this common conversation about who we are and what our best, best values are. And if the justices are asking Americans to reconsider their traditional commitments and understandings and to move in a new direction, to live um, in faithfulness with a constitution that is a source of values and ideals and not just a codification of traditions, because there's a tension between those two understandings of the Constitution's authority as law, if they consider it important to pay attention to moving the American people to recognizing this new understanding, I'm not prepared to rule that out of bounds. Um, I think merely only reasoning in a consequentialist, you know, result-oriented way um, would undermine the project completely. But at the same time, rendering law for the American people without regard to any, uh, uh, without paying any attention to what the beliefs and understandings of Americans are and how they're likely to react, produces, I think, alienation from the court and the constitution in the long run. And, and frankly, one might say that Dobbs is an example of that yeah. because the court spoke to half the country and decide, or a third of the country and decides really a third of the country, 
or less, and decided to ignore the rest and to claim proudly that it didn't know. I mean, there's an irony. You asked me about the draft opinion. The draft opinion says we don't know what the consequences are going to be. And the, there's an explosion in terms of <laughs> after the leak. And then the opinion that's formally released says the same thing. When, of course, the court did know if it didn't already know. Of course it knew. Right. It just did not care. And so the question is, you know, when justices like Kennedy or uh, O'Connor think it important to pay attention to the understandings of Americans across the political spectrum, is that necessarily diluting a right or is it rendering a right in terms that more Americans can accept it rather than backlash against it? So that's the, the, the puzzle there for you. That's a great, I, I, don't, I don't know if you take this as a compliment or an insult, but your, your answer to that was almost word for word where Posner said. <laughs> You've, um, I, I, had, I had a sense of deja vu there. That was that was serious. Um, yeah. I, didn't, I don't know what he has to say on the matter, but it just comes from recognizing that the court's authority in the end is has an, a deep element of voluntarism about it. Yeah. You know, the court has the kind of authority that depends on the recognition and respect of Americans. So I have a uh, we, we're running we're, we're running a few minutes left. I have a last question. That's a big question. Um, and, and I, I didn't tell you this in prep. I wanted to surprise you with. I wanted to surprise you a little bit. Um, I was asked three times last semester to speak to whether progressives should be originalists or should use originalist tools in this new world. I want to tell you that all three times I said I'm happy to speak to this. Was, uh, one time it was ACS, one time it was FedSoc, and one time it was just students. Um, all three times I said, you really should get Reva Siegel to talk to you about this because I, I don't consider myself an expert on social movements. I, I know something about them. I read your work and Jack's work, but I'm not an expert. Um, but nevertheless, I went ahead and did those talks. And um, the Constitution Accountab Accountability Center in D.C. is a progressive organization, as you know, that has been an originalist organization. And... Uh, I want your reaction to something they did, which really surprised me as a subset to the question, should liberals use originalist tools? They re, I said this before on my podcast, they reposted, uh, I think the most critical blog post I've ever written about originalism. The title was originalism is dangerous nonsense. And I laid it out very long blog post as to why that is. Um, and they reposted that on their website. And I didn't. I don't. I know Elizabeth Wydra a little bit. I don't know David Gans at all. Um, I wrote to David and introduced myself and said I, I was really surprised you did this because I thought you guys believed in originalism. And he said he gave me a. I, I think he, his answer basically was, "Well, we're we're working on this right now." Um, so they're questioning it. I think they're questioning what they should do, and that's a group that's been dedicated to originalism for years. What should progressives do as a pure strategy? Should they bring out originalism tools when they can? Or should they say, we know, Judge, that you have to do what Supreme Court says, but we don't think originalism is the way to go, and we're going to make non-original. What should they do? So um, what you're saying about David Gans is yeah. fascinating yeah. to me. I have to follow up on that. He and I go way back. Okay. Uh, so I would say, um, and I have said in trying to write recently with my um, – casebook co-author Jack Balkin and sometimes co-author Jack Balkin yeah. uh, that I can't write um, under the rubric of uh, originalism or progressive originalism or in a way that treats all claims on the past as originalist. 
Um, and that's a locution that many people on even the left tend to slide into, that any claim about deep constitutional history is original understanding, right. which is not so. If we had more time, we can unpack why it's not so. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the first things I would say, is um, the things I might say is, one, it might depend on if you're before a court and what the law of the relevant precedents might be, because even this court, with its many self-proclaimed originalists, um, amount to constitutional pluralists. They only practice something even resembling originalism sometimes, and what they practice in those cases generally doesn't conform to academic understandings of original public meaning originalism. So I would say the case law even probably gives you openings to talk history without claiming that history is originalism or the exclusive source of authority. And one a particular practice that I recommend at the end of um, memory games is the understanding that our constitutional tradition is the work of many authors and many lawmakers and not just the framers. And if one's going to speak in a way that summons past historical actors, one should do it in an inclusive way that recognizes Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and Crystal Eastman and a whole range of characters that are some of, many of whom are less known to Americans, to appreciate how many understandings we have are the work of people who acted after the ratification of the relevant provisions of the Constitution. Justice Thomas endlessly invokes Frederick Douglass. Why? Because he reveres Douglass, not because Fred, Frederick Douglass was a, a ratifier of the Constitution or in any sense conforming to the original to the rules of the game of performing originalism. Justice Thomas only sometimes practices something we could call original public meaning originalism, see Bruin. So um, what I would then uh, say to wind up is that our past, and this is my politics of constitutional memory um, claim, our past is rich with Americans having faith to the, con who had faithful commitments to the constitution and make constitutional change, and we should celebrate them in our arguments with one another and bend originalism, um, it, which is in any event porous and open to change in that direction. I have uh, to, but I would never hide value yeah. unless, well, I'll just stop right there. You never hide values. I know. I appreciate that. Um, since you mentioned Thomas and Frederick Douglass, I, I can't end this without saying I wrote a piece for Wake Forest called, uh, uh, the basic point was, is Justice Thomas acting in bad faith or is he just stupid? Because he said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, but he cites Frederick Douglass and the affirmative action case in Grutter and other cases completely out of context. I mean, he literally takes a, a three sentences of a Douglass speech and ignores the other hundred Douglass speeches. And he takes it out of context. He doesn't get the meaning right. He claims that Douglass just won black people to be left alone. That's so, so therefore, of course, affirmative action is unconstitutional. When in fact, Douglass said over and over again, something to the effect of, Never have so many people been released from bondage with so little. I mean, there's no way Frederick Douglass would have been against affirmative action. Um, so Thomas completely misquotes him. And I, I document all of that. In any event, um, Reva, thank you so much. This has been awesome. And I, I've learned a lot from you, as I always do when I read your work. And I really appreciate you being here. Well, thanks so much for having me on. As I said before we started, um, I'm a great, great fan of yours. Well, so. that means a tremendous amount to me. So thank you so much.